We're a month away from testing in Bahrain. The F1 news keeps on coming as this offseason has certainly kept us on our toes. We've got all but one team's car launch date on the schedule. Helmet cams are here to stay. And will we see new F1 owners in the future? All this and more on Unlapped. Should it get to a point where F1 is entertaining offers and, and, and is looking at Will they still have to get approval from the FIA? And then what will the FIA say about it? And what will the FIA's position be in it? And how much power will the FIA want to wield? When do you decide to tweet from your personal account? And when do you decide to tweet from the FIA official account? On one occasion, we had the superimposed uh, shadow of an eagle flying over turn one at Kota, <laughs> just midway through the race. Katie George, back from a week off. Lawrence Edmondson, Nate Saunders, of course, as always. I missed you both. How was last week? Uh, it was really good, actually. We had a good podcast, but um, naturally missed you, Katie. And uh, I know you're out having fun skiing, but um, obviously nothing's quite as fun as a podcast with us. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I did miss you guys, and the show is great. So I appreciate you guys holding it down in my absence. Uh, I also wanted to announce quickly that we will have a digital show at ESPN all throughout the season. Our first show is going to be on March 5th with Gary Streisky, Spencer Hall, and myself coming from Bristol, Connecticut, where our ESPN headquarters are. You two, of course, will be boots on the ground and a part of our coverage, but all season long, we'll have pre and post race coverage, which is really exciting. So something to uh, mark on the calendars, ping in your iPhones uh, or Androids. March 5th, first digital show from ESPN. And remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave us a comment on what you want to hear more of. And don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. If you're listening, of course, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's dive in. So some news that is pretty intriguing, and I think there's a lot to unpack here. Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund considered an attempt, we hear, to add Formula One motor racing to its growing portfolio of sports. Not really surprising because Saudi Arabia has been investing heavily in sports for a while now. We all know that, you know, it's in the prem, bought Newcastle United FC. It's hosted major events in boxing, golf, and of course, F1. Lawrence, what did you make of this news? Were you at all surprised to hear that this was a possibility? A little bit surprised, but like I said, it is in line with what Saudi Arabia has been doing in other sports. Um, perhaps the price tag was the most surprising bit and also the bit that seems to be debated a little bit. Uh, 20 billion was dollars was the number quoted, <laughs> including debts. Um, that's significant. Uh, Liberty Media, who currently own Formula One, bought it for 4.4 billion, about 8 billion, including debts in 2017. So obviously the price of Formula One in that period seems to be escalating rapidly. Um, and there's big questions about whether it's being overvalued, what that would mean for the sport if uh, somebody did come in and try and buy it at 20 million and then try and make that investment work for them and what it would mean for existing contracts, how much they'd have to go up. Races on the calendar, I mean, the amount of times we've talked on this podcast about races we don't want to lose from Formula One, but they're being priced out of the market for races, uh, that would be significant as well. So it's a big deal. Um, and uh, you look at where F1 is now, and I think it, it it really does indicate just the success that Liberty's had with it, the amount of 
uh, value they've been able to add to it. And there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. We know under Bernie Eccleston's rule, there was very little in the way of kind of social media usage and there was no drive to survive. And we know how important those two things have been to growing the popularity of the sport in the United States, but all around the world, really. So it's no surprise, really, that companies, or in this case, countries, are looking at Formula One and thinking, Potentially, there's uh, you know there's an, there's an investment there that that can work for it, but twenty billion is significant. Uh, I was looking up um, F1's annual revenues, and uh, the most reliable recent figure is from twenty twenty one, and that was two point one billion. So you know you're looking at kind of ten times the annual revenue. Yeah. And I'm not into investing, unfortunately. I, <laughs> I don't trust myself putting any small amount of money in, into investments, let alone uh, large amounts. But that seems like a lot, 10 times uh, the annual revenue. And the profit from that year was 92 million, 93 million, I think. So um, that's, you know, there's a lot, they would have to make a lot of changes, you feel, to, to regain that over time. But we'll have to wait and see. I mean, Saudi Arabia clearly interested in, in investing in different sports and whether they'll go to F1, who knows? But of course, F1 has to agree to it. And the report suggested that there was no interest from Formula One to sell. So this story kind of, we're finding out about it about 12 months afterwards. And mm-hmm. in fact, it seems like it was never really a major story to start with because F1 never entertained the idea in the first place. Yeah, it's it's wild, isn't it? That that amount. But it, I don't, I'm, I'm not that surprised that so much money has been has been thrown out there. You know, this seems to be, if you look at just generally in sports now, the way power has kind of shifted from, it used to be like if we look in soccer, for example, it used to be Barcelona, Real Madrid, and a couple of Premier League clubs really had all the money. They were the teams that kind of dictated where the transfer market goes. That's now gone to kind of Qatar and now to Saudi. You know, the the deal for Cristiano Ronaldo just after the World Cup was <laughs> insane. You know, the money that he's being uh, being being paid there, you know, to drop down in terms of you know standard of league is basically the end of his kind of mainstream kind of career um so the power of that money is crazy it's obviously completely changed the face of golf in the last year um wwe currently i think it's about six billion um dollars that 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 deal looks like it might be um going to the saudis for as well so i think this is just kind of where we're at with sports now sadly like whether or not formula one are entertaining this right now i think there's it's clear that saudi saudi you know you know countries in the middle east have looked at sports and looked at big events that we have you know, across the world and have said, if we can get bring those here, they have the money, you know, and money often yeah. makes it a lot easier to put events on to, you know, to get people on board with what you want to do. I mean, some of the, I, I can't, I forget exact numbers, but there was, and I'm not a huge golf fan, but um, some of the lower players down in the golfing kind of hierarchy said that they were being paid what their career would have been worth uh, 10, 15, 20 mm-hmm. times over just to go play in live golf. You yeah, know, not even and to win, just to not play. even. Yeah, exactly. And like, it's easy to sit, you know, behind a desk and say, "Oh, well, you know, they shouldn't do it." But if anybody was offered that kind of money, whether you're a person, whether you're a business, you immediately look at it and you say, "That's a, you know, it's a life changing, business changing, whatever, future changing amount of money." So, I think that, um, you know, hopefully Formula One, you know, was serious about, you know, those reports said F1 didn't really entertain the offer, but it must have turned some heads. You, you know. It, anything that that much that much money must turn some heads eventually and uh, like Lawrence said liberty of 
added to the value of Formula One. And I think that sure. they probably were at some points looking and thinking, well, we could probably sell this for quite a bit more than we bought it for. You know, you never know five, six years down the line, is that is that value going to tail off? Is it going to stabilize? Is it going to, you know, you never know. It could even ease off at some point. You know, this generation right now are obviously super popular, but what happens five, 10 years from now? So I'm sure that there'll be, you know, thoughts and stuff like that on on, on what you actually do with this. But I'm I'm fascinated to know what the teams think about this as well, just after we've been talking about, you know, they won't let Andretti in because they want to keep the prize fund as it is. You know, you imagine this amount of money coming into the sport, you know, the Andretti thing shows how important money is in terms of guiding key decisions. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely one we're going to have to keep an eye on because I think as well, you know, th- there's a reason this report would have come out now. You know, usually mm. these things are either leaked or they, you know, Maybe there's a formal bid being prepared. Who knows? But um, yeah, twenty. That it's crazy money. I mean, when I first saw it, I, I assumed there'd been a typo in the headline. I thought it must be someone's added a zero on there when they didn't <laughs> didn't need one. Um, but yeah, it's wild. So I think this is kind of sadly. I think in five ten years, I think most sports are going to have gone down this route. Sure. Well, let me ask you this, Lawrence. Back in 2017, when Liberty Media Corp made the deal, what did you think then of the valuation? Um. It seemed about right. So I believe CVC, the previous owner, owners, uh, bought it for, um, I'm just double checking my notes here, uh, 2 billion in 2006. So, um, you know, it had gone up, but it hadn't gone up dramatically. Uh, and I think when Liberty bought it, I think a few people felt that they were, you know, they were paying a lot, but they really realized the potential in it. And, um, and, and that's the key is that, can you find ways to make that money back? Can you find ways to increase revenue? Now, Liberty's been a bit unfortunate that within their relatively short ownership of the sport, there was the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. which really hit revenues hard. Uh, hit, uh, I think they made a loss in uh, in twenty twenty. So um, it's it you know it 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 made sense that eventually it it sold, and I think it was the right thing for the sport at the time. Uh, Bernie Eccleston, who had really built the commercial side of the sport from next to nothing, kind of basically coming as a, one of the team owners into a position where he was uh, negotiating with um, circuits and so on uh, for, for the, on the team's behalf, basically, and then eventually put himself into a position where uh, he was able to um, get control of the commercial rights and uh, on, on a lease and, and be able to um, exploit that financially. And, and so he built it to, to such a great level but there were clear areas where Eccleston hadn't really explored or just didn't feel there was value in. Um, but Liberty saw the value in those. And of course, that's similar things to, to what I mentioned in the last answer, the social media elements mm-hmm. and uh, and drive to survive and so on. So um, so, so Liberty, have, you know, they, they made it work for themselves. So I, I think, you know, the price at the time, whenever a company gets bought for, for billions, you're always wondering, well, it's, is that the right thing to do? But I think Liberty have shown... Uh, with the way that they developed the sport and kind of managed to get uh, return off it in increasing revenues. I imagine this uh, 2022's revenue is going to be even higher um, and 2023 onwards. So, um, uh, you know, uh, I feel like they've, they paid a lot, but they're starting to, to to get the money back. Now the question is whether somebody mm-hmm. then goes above that, like Saudi Arabia, but, but clearly, um, Liberty believe there's still a huge amount of work they want to do with the sport, a huge amount of profit they want to take from the sport. Um, otherwise, they would have turned around and, and perhaps entertained or at least got into negotiations with Saudi Arabia about, about selling F1. 
we'll talk about a return on your investment, right? I mean, just the difference in the valuation possibly from 2017 to now, you could understand why this idea never even got off the ground because they weren't in a position to even consider selling. I would imagine, Nate, that Saudi Arabia would consider making another offer in the future. Maybe that's the near future. Maybe it's down the road. But if they were and the ownership changes, like what would you think of a Saudi Arabian buyout? Would it change the way things are done, the way that we view the sport? Yeah, I think it's a really good question because I think ultimately that's what has to underpin this. I don't think this is the last we'll hear of this story. I mean, you just got to look at the other examples we have. I mean, the World Cup, I know it wasn't Saudi, but it was Qatar and it had similar issues to what you might expect from you know, Saudi ownership of something. Um, unbelievable in terms of the infrastructure that was built there yeah. at the World Cup, you know, as an event, obviously, I mean, there was a graph going around, wasn't there, that it showed the the money that was spent at World Cups before and then in Qatar and just how much more money it was. Exactly the same with Saudi. I think the issue is, you know, you get into the kind of the murky depths of some of the politics behind, you know, behind Saudi and where the drivers, you know, right now Saudi doesn't own Formula One, but yet we've had, you know, we spoke about it on a on a pod a couple of weeks ago about the, and we're not exactly sure exactly what it looks like yet, but this clamp down on political speech and stuff like that. Um, and one of the targets, you know, for for you know some of the protests that Lewis and Seb made in previous years was Saudi, you know, for for, for you know for a number of issues. So you start to worry about things like that. You know, does it, I think a lot of the time it's, it, it comes back to this classic issue of sports washing, doesn't it? And that's the phrase that gets thrown around. And I think that Saudi, if you look at the other examples in other sports, they're very, very good. They're very, very smart at how they navigate a lot of those issues. They say, look, you know, we're here just to buy a sports league. We're not into politics, stuff like this. But I mean, the golf, some of those press conferences those players had before that tournament started were painful you know they were just kind of like well we're not going to talk about it we're not going to talk about it and it becomes the main story for a little bit and i've 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 always felt that the reason this has become a big thing and the reason it's successful is and you saw it again to use the world cup as a kind of maybe a slightly clumsy but you know recent example you i think a lot of the middle eastern countries that you know are getting these events or getting these sports will almost ride out the bad publicity for a year you know, two years and then just get in, get onto the business of, of running it. So in terms of Formula One, what it would mean, I think that would be the main concern or one of the big concerns is what does it mean from a political, social standpoint? Obviously, there's, you know, we race as one, F1's trying to push inclusive, inclusivity, diversity, stuff like that. But I think on a wider scale as well, you know, I think Lawrence alluded to it, you know, what does the schedule look like in future? You know, are Saudi going to really turn around and say, you know, Monaco, you can keep having the kind of sweetheart deal that you have currently. Are they going to look at, you know, races like Silverstone and stuff like that and say, well, actually, we can get way more money, you know, a return mm -hmm. on that investment that we've made from other places. So the sport, I think, would start to look drastically different to what it looks like now. Um, you, you then include sponsors, you include probably, I would imagine you'd have a f at least one or two pay drivers from the region. And that's not to say you're not going to find good drivers from Saudi Arabia. But right now, there's no obvious candidates who would you know would would jump to f1 so there's all these things you know there's all these things that, that kind of come into play um so i think and you kind of get elements of that every time you change leadership but i think this is so complete and it's such a it's such a wide-ranging you know take or would be such a wide-ranging takeover were it ever to happen that i think if you were to kind of I, I guess itemize formula one into every facet every thing that it is i think it would impact everything because it would have to, because the yeah. Saudis would come in and say, we want this to look like our sport. We want this to look like something we own and we control. And there's a lot of things right now that, 
you know, they would say, well, we want to change that, you know, and you can probably list those. I've mentioned some of them, but there's probably more I've not even thought about. So I think it would be big. And um, you can imagine the Saudis coming back with a different offer. Obviously, we're not in the room with those discussions. Mm -hmm. But I think an interesting thing, if you're Liberty now, you look at it, if they were looking to sell, there's no other, you can't really see any other companies that would even be able to really match close to that. So I think that's also where that that kind of money is interesting is there's not really companies you, you see some takeovers that are in that in that region but you've really they've really narrowed the market of of other companies other investors that could even come close to kind of matching that kind of that kind of offer. So it's almost kind of pushed the playing field you know so far away from a lot of people that might that might have been interested in in becoming a stakeholder in Formula 1. Yeah, it's obviously a hypothetical at this point but it's such a fascinating one to kind of dive into. Lawrence, do you think it's purely coincidence or do you think that there is some kind of correlation between the FIA's recent ban of political statements and possibly this news coming out when it did? Um, I, I think it's really a, a coincidence. And actually, the FIA's stance on it, um, based on Mohammed Ben Salem, the FIA president's tweets um, shortly after the, the the news came out in the, in the last couple of days, um, is that he's kind of warned against these inflated price tags. And uh, he says, uh, any potential buyer is advised to apply common sense, consider the greater good of the sport and come with a clear, sustainable plan, not just a lot of money. Now, I don't think, you know, this is necessarily a political statement by uh, Mohammed Ben Salem. It, it, it's more just saying, look, we can't get carried away with how much this sport's worth. And I think a lot of the concerns, as he lays out, uh, the future impact on promoters in terms of increased hosting fees and other commercial costs and any adverse impact. So again, it's it's really just whether whoever comes in and pays 20 billion, what are they going to do to try and recoup that cost and how they do it? Um, so I, I, I honestly don't think that the uh, the restrictions uh we shouldn't really call it a ban because potentially drivers can still protest if they get sign off from the fia uh I, I don't think that is necessarily related although of course uh the fia were probably aware of 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 this bid or, or may have got got wind of it um because it happened last year but um I, I think an interesting thing in all of this is the fia's role uh in the ownership of formula one Mm -hmm. where it stands what what exactly what rights it has and its relevance going forward in form one because we discussed that we've alluded to it on a number of occasions uh because there seems to be increasingly battlegrounds being drawn between the fia and formula one the most obvious recent one was the andretti entry which the fia seems to be very much behind and formula one is a little bit more lukewarm on uh and whether andretti cadillac were coming in 2026 uh but um to do a bit of a history lesson into the ownership of Formula One and why this is actually very complicated um, is is that the commercial rights that the Formula One group hold uh, or, or Formula One management hold um, are on a 100-year lease from the FIA uh, from 2010 to 2110. Uh, so essentially, it's a, you actually get this kind of ownership structure quite a lot in the UK housing market, you have uh, leaseholds, which, you know, you, you don't necessarily own the, on the ground on which the building's built, but you have the I'm, lease for 100 I'm, years or so on. I'm sat in a um, leasehold right now, Lance, so that's a great... There, uh, there you go. Yeah, I, own, yeah, exactly. yeah, I just, own the flat, but I don't own the building. <laughs> I mean, but for, for, for all intents and purposes, you own that building, right? I mean, you can do with it what you want. You can knock walls through, assuming you get planning permissions and so on. So it's the same thing, you know, F1 owns the commercial rights and they will make money off, off them. But... Um, 
there, there is this uh, there, there is this kind of contract in place, this lease in place, and this was a hugely controversial deal. It remains to be a hugely controversial deal because um, it was sold by the previous FIA president Max Mosley to Bernie Eccleston uh, for somewhere between three hundred and three hundred sixty million dollars at the time. Now that's for a hundred years of exploitation of the commercial rights. So clearly. Clearly, um, Formula One's made its its money back already on 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 the money that it paid the FIA, plus more and more and more. And now we're talking about it being sold, but for for twenty billion. So, um, you know, when we talk about why is the FIA still relevant? Well, technically, due to this lease, they still actually own Formula One and the commercial rights. But one of the reasons that lease existed in the first place was um, the European. Uh, uh, European government essentially decided that they wanted to split for uh, monopoly reasons, the commercial rights and and the running of the of the sporting side, and so um, that's where Mosley and, and Eccleston came to this agreement, and 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 it was moved on. So, yes, it, it's very complicated. The other thing is whether um, the FIA would have any say over who buys Formula One and for how much. Okay. Um, they had to approve the Liberty Media. Uh, buyout in 2017 and uh, it's interesting that Mohammed Ben Salem would be so vocal at this stage I mean like I said we don't think F1 is about to be sold F1 uh, you know declined the offer it seems or didn't get into talks with Saudi Arabia but should it get to a point where F1 is entertaining offers and, and and is looking at will they still have to get approval from the FIA and then what will the FIA say about it and what will the FIA's position be in it and how much power will the FIA want to wield to, um, you know, make sure its own position within Formula One uh, is is certain going forward. So it's it does become very political, but um, I think, you know, some of the the smaller things and, and some of the things which get a lot of traction uh, are, are not necessarily the, the the main drivers. There's a lot going on underneath and uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see how it plays out and to try and stay on top of it. And yeah, I, I just this afternoon was looking back at some of the history of it to kind of refresh my memory of how Formula One and Bernie Eccleston ended up with such an amazing deal on uh, this hundred year lease of uh, commercial rights. But yeah, it's 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 interesting stuff. Take me down that path, though, because I think at face value, you would assume, OK, Liberty just has to agree to sell and then just we'll make all this money and be gone. But a couple entities have to approve of this, right? They all have to be on the same page to make this happen. Yeah. So my understanding is the FIA do. I, I found a Liberty Media um, investment prospectus that talked about the hundred year lease and that mm-hmm. uh, that it was necessary for the FIA to sign it off. But it said there were exceptions, but it doesn't detail what the exceptions are. And I haven't seen the hundred year lease, so I couldn't tell you exactly. But maybe there is a way around it. And um, it, I think a lot of it will, yeah, it will depend on on lawyers getting in a room and, and deciding. But it would be very unusual for the FIA to stand in the way. F1 uh, shares in F1 have changed hands a number of occasions since uh, basically the late nineties through to uh, Liberty's buyout of the controlling shares in twenty seventeen. Lots of different owners have come in and out, and the FIA have never blocked any of them as far as I'm aware. Um, I, I wasn't working directly in the sport in the early 2000s. And and so I don't know exactly, but I'm pretty sure that they've never blocked uh, something like that. And a lot of the time it was Bernie Eccleston uh, working to basically ensure that, um, you know, there was investment in the sport, but also ensure that he retained control. Uh, and then uh, for a long period of that time, his good buddy, Max Mosley, uh, 
the head of the FIA kind of working with him and um and making sure that they both had a a, a backbone of power that that they could make sure they could t- still make the decisions but of course that all changed in uh in 2017 for Bernie when uh, he was kicked out by Liberty Media so um it's 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 a different world now and I think there's a lot more regulation as well on 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 these kind of deals uh, than perhaps there was in the past if you're the FIA president, when do you decide to tweet from your personal account and when do you decide to tweet from the FIA official account? Well, that's a very good question. And in fact, the question of whether Mohammed Ben Salem should be talking about this at all uh, has also been raised um, by Formula One in a letter from their lawyers to the FIA. That's how serious the situation has got to bring it completely up to date is um, the F1 in a private letter, although it was leaked via BBC and Sky News, um, they uh, questioned really why Mohammed Ben Salem was talking about the value of Formula One in public. Of course, as I mentioned before, that 100-year lease means that the FIA looks after regulatory affairs and uh, the sporting side, and Formula One looks after the commercial rights and how to exploit them. And of course, the value of that side of the company uh, is um, a very sensitive issue for Liberty Media. I mean, they may not be looking to sell, but at some point, perhaps they may do. And to have the FIA president saying on an exact date via a uh, via a medium as, as public as Twitter that the sport is not worth $20 billion, that it's been overvalued, um, is significant. And uh, in this letter, which, uh, like I said, has been published in a number of places, um, the F1 lawyers said that the FI president had overstepped the bounds of both the FI's remit and its contractual rights. It does seem like uh, Mohammed Ben Salem picked a questionable one here. Um, Of course, he says that he's acting in the interests of the sport um, as custodians. The FIA have an interest in doing so. But um, Formula One uh, feels that that is going too far, you know, to to start talking about the value of their business is going too far. And uh, in the letter, they went as far as saying to the degree that these comments damaged the value of Liberty Media Corporation, the FIA may be liable as a result. So it was a punchy one. Um, Like I said, private letter from lawyers uh, to the FIA, but still one that became public and, and one that is very clear in its intent which is to help to tell uh, Mohammed Ben Salem to, to back off and and not get involved in in Formula One's commercial affairs. Um, so where do we go from here? Well, you know that's kind of the interesting bit. We're, we're not quite sure. Um, neither F1 or the FIA have commented publicly on this um, from their heads of heads of uh, media. So uh, we'll have to wait and see what. Maybe some people think we'll wait for those launches, see if it becomes a topic there. I suspect it will be, and and into testing and the racing. Of course, when the racing gets underway, we all like to talk about about that. But this is going to be a, a theme throughout 2023 and perhaps beyond. Um, this battleground, this uh, you know constant warring between F1 and the FIA, and where it ends, and also where it leaves the sport, and um, and also what are the reasons? And I suspect underneath all of it, it's it's mainly financial. So. Yeah, it's something that we'll keep an eye on and I'm sure we will discuss many times again on this podcast. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it, when you peel back some of the layers of this. I think it goes back to what we were talking about with Andretti, what we've talked about kind of increasingly over the past, you know, 12 months, definitely. Obviously, since Ben Sullivan came in at the start of last year, he kind of came in at probably the worst time you could come in 
as an FIA president right after Abu Dhabi 21. But yeah, we've had this, there's this simmering kind of tension beneath the, beneath the surface. And I've always felt that, you know, we've talked about it before that um, it does feel like the, you know, the FIA president is, is more and more kind of loggerheads with Stefano Domenicali. You know, there was that crazy exchange he had with Horner on stage at the, at the awards giving ceremony. And it all feels a bit like there's, I don't want to say ego involved, but there's, there's definitely a desire to, it, well, there must be a desire for him to kind of stamp his authority on motorsport. You know, I think if you, you know, Lawrence has mentioned one of the names, but if you look at the two people that preceded Mohammed Ben Salim, you had Max Mosley, who, you know, in terms of motorsport was, you know, as as heavyweight as they come. You know, he and Bernie were that were such a great pairing together in terms of what they were able to achieve together. Then you have Jean Tot, who was a juggernaut in his own right, you know, who had achieved so much in Formula One, was, you know, was revered for what he had done in Formula One. And you've got Ben Salims coming. I've always felt that there's been, I don't want to say people have looked down on him because he's, you know, he's head of the governing body, but I, I don't think his reputation carries the same weight as a Tot, as a Mosley. Okay. And I don't know, maybe it plays into that. Maybe it's a desire for him to, you know, I don't want to say he wants to stand alone from the governing body because he's in charge of it, but I think it's, it's a, it's, just a way of reinforcing that he's the guy in charge of that governing body. Um, because I thought that was strange. You know, usually you'd put that out in an official press release. You know, you'd put that out and say, this is the official statement. Here's what the president says. Um, so very strange. Um, and it'd be, it'd be fascinating. I mean, annoyingly, we won't get to talk to any of these, any of the team bosses for you know a couple of weeks. Um, we'll obviously be talking to, to Christian Horner and then to Toto Wolf the following week when, when launch week starts. Um, and I'm sure those two guys will have a really fascinating opinion on that. But you know, Horner, Horner was the guy on stage with him at that at that uh, at that ceremony. I think there is a feeling that there's kind of a I don't want to say there's a peculiar way of of handling things, but he definitely goes about things in a very different way to what Formula One is used to, and it has rubbed some people the wrong way. So it'll be interesting to see how that tweet and how that reaction is perceived uh, within F1. Um, maybe not the contents of it, but maybe the way he went about actually putting it out there because it you know what he said actually made a lot of sense but like you said katie he kind of <laughs> yeah tweeting it from your own account it just in this day and age it just looks a bit it just doesn't look looks off i don't know yeah it, it doesn't look proper does it to, for, for <laughs> want of a better phrase so i did notice that i thought it was strange um and who knows maybe 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 you know the story coming out and maybe his response is all part of this you know this deeper issue that we see where you know, there's some there's some things going on behind the scenes where, as exactly, I mean, what Lawrence was saying there. You know, half of that stuff I was kind of having to remind myself. Um, there's a great documentary on. Well, there's two actually out. There's one on Max Mosley, and there's one that's just come out on Bernie Eccleston, which details a lot of this stuff. Um, and it is amazing just how detailed it is. But yeah, the great thing that F1 and the FIA used to have was that those two guys got along. They weren't always on the same page, but they they knew how to work with each other. And I think that that's been lost with Ben Sullivan coming in. And I think that you're starting to see those cracks more and more, whether it's Andretti, whether it's, you know, some of the things around sprint racing, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, like I said, interesting to see how how all of this has been uh, has been received. We'll close the book on this for now. We might revisit it depending on what happens in the future. But I want to talk a little tech. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any 8-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. 
Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza, better because it has to be. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Something that's been in the works for a while now is helmet cams, and apparently they are here to stay. After specific trials that we saw throughout last season, the FIA believes that the new tech adds value during broadcasts, and fans and viewers you know, seem to agree. So the use of helmet cams in 2023 and beyond was proposed in Apparently, it was unanimously approved to update the 2023 technical regulation. So we will see this as we get going this season. Thoughts on how it like seems kind of like a no brainer to me, Lawrence. But what do you make of the helmet cams? You a fan? Yeah, I think it's one of the coolest things we've seen in terms of a development in the final product of Formula One that comes onto your screen at home. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the coolest things we've seen in ages, you know, yeah. perhaps as far back as, uh, you know, the original onboard cameras or some of the changes in views we got from onboard cameras. So um, it really does give you a different perspective for for a number of reasons. One, just because you're that little bit lower in the cockpit, the viewpoint out. And so it's that little bit closer to what a driver has for years. We've got used to what we call the T cams, which are the cameras on top of the roll hoop on the top of the car. And you get this kind of view over the front wheels and you see a lot more. But what you always had to remember is that the driver is sat lower than that. And really they can't see beyond the tops of, uh, of, of their two front wheels. And so, yeah, to, to get an idea of what that's like. And then also sometimes the violence of the movement within the car um and i'm not talking about an accident so i'm just talking in one g-forces in corners but then also last year one thing that we uh talked about uh, an awful lot was the porpoising of the cars the bouncing of the cars up and down due to basically aerodynamic sensitivities and how much you could see that through the helmet cam mm-hmm. now the human eyeball was incredible in that it is actually able to adjust for a huge amount of vibrations and weird movements and your vision stays fairly steady but um yeah, the, the helmet cam technology is kind of moving on as well. So you you get an idea of the vibrations and everything, but all those movements you see, even if the driver's eyeballs are able to compensate for some of it, is is all in the kind of violence, the sheer forces jarring. going through the cars. Yeah, the, you know, how jarring it is to be a Formula One driver. So um, I think it's fantastic. And we, we kind of got really used to seeing it being used in footage um, in... Uh, last year you know we, we got some glimpses of it i think a couple of years ago and slowly they've been rolling it out so now to make sure that it's on all drivers helmets going into the new year is fantastic because it means every incident every overtaking maneuver um all of it will be captured and while you might not see it live through that they're more likely to use it as a replay mm-hmm. that's such a cool perspective i think yeah, and it's it's. I think it's really important as well for taking the fan into moments where, you know, for example, when it rains, those T cams often it doesn't quite show you just how much, how how sorry, how little visibility there is in the car because of the placement of that. It's actually you know a lot of the water being dispersed is kind of is being dispersed in a very different way around that camera than it is around the driver. 
So I think that things like that are, are super. I mean, I absolutely loved it. Same. I, I think most people who saw that thought it was incredible. Um, and Lawrence is right. You know, so if, if you see the old 80s footage of Senna and Prost, the cameras are bouncing around and they're, and I mean, it, you know, it's kind of helped by their, you know, sometimes they're manually changing gears as well in the car, but that bouncing, I mean, some of those, some of those uh, onboards in, in the Senna documentary are just unbelievable. You know, he's going around Monaco and it's the, the cameras bouncing around. It's fine. It just adds something visceral to the, to the experience when you're watching it now. And it's, you know, the cameras are fantastic, but it doesn't quite give you that same, that same thrill watching it. So I think that that's what, that's what the, the um the helmet camera does and i think as well it just it, it just goes to show you how limited that visibility is in the cockpit you know a lot of, you see a lot of this now i always go back to lewis v max at silverstone the amount of people i saw on reddit and twitter and t- tiktok and everything after that kind of almost like it was like the sapruder film from you know the, the kennedy assassination like frame by frame looking at it like you know if a stapper moves a slight bit here and here but you see it through somebody's you see it through someone's T-cam, that's one thing. You see it through their visor cam. You realize just how minute these things are and just how quickly they happen. And also, you know, the the, the visibility in those mirrors isn't, you know, it's it's not great. So it kind of, it just hammers home again just how amazing it is that Formula 1 drivers do what they do. Um, and yeah, I mean, last year, I, I forget the first one we saw last year, but there was one where we were all in the media center and there was sort of people, you know, people who've been covering it for 20, 30 years who were like, wow, like this is, the, this is so cool. So I think it has that ability to, to get people even who've been watching it for decades kind of out of their seats and think this is amazing. So from a visual perspective, that's always great. Yeah. I think for a long time, there was a desire to get some kind of helmet cam cam in there because in the nineties, um, lots of cameras started to sprout on the cars in different places. Mm-hmm. There's one by the front wing and, uh, rearward-looking ones and things like that, and I I think it all, the technology all got a lot more reliable, so they could run it into live transmission. And um, the the Senna documentary is a really good example of, of some incredible, incredible footage. Um, but uh, it wasn't always used in 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 the live stuff. And in fact, um, I think the makes of the of the Senna documentary were amazed when they went to Biggin Hill, which is where all the uh, previous uh, reels of film or digitalized um uh uh video from all those previous years is kept and they were allowed to go through it all and they just found this amazing stuff which is why i think you know that documentary is still spectacular even for someone who watched all of those races you know because you do get to see uh, something very special um I, w- one thing which i really loved and it wasn't actually to do with the onboard racing but was for a very brief period they broadcast um, the drivers' briefings, uh, or at least mm. little snippets from it. And it was when um, it was pre Michael Matthews, it was when Charlie Whiting was still the race director. And just seeing, um, above all, I think Charlie's relationship with the drivers and the level of respect they had with him, and also the jokes that they would occasionally have. So <laughs> there, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it must have been, I'm guessing, around maybe 2016, 17 ish. Uh, they had, um, yeah, these these little kind of like snippets of, of just drivers joking with each other or laughing at each other or asking ridiculous questions to Charlie and F1 uh, yeah, used to put it up on their social media. And I, a lot of it still floats around now on social media. There's a, get. There's a gif of Perez, isn't there? That still comes up from that where exactly. I forget what happened. Yeah. I think he and Grosjean had an incident and Grosjean basically just rats him out at this driver's briefing, he puts his hand up and says, we're going to talk about what, per- what Perez did. And it shows Perez. And he's just like, you know, just like a kid that's just been told off at school. So that was great. And um, it's a shame they got rid of that, really. But imagine if we'd had that in 2021, just some oh, of the, yeah. 
you know, some of the the stuff. Yeah. What people want. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, and also, so we, it sounds like we're trying to sell the center movie to people listening, but in that movie, you have incredible stuff in the driver's briefings where Senna is going at it with, with the FIA president then. And, you know, he's got Prost there and it's got, you you can see like which drivers are kind of on his side and which aren't. So I think stuff like that, I think that's what Netflix has shown. There's a real market for that kind of thing. Um, it's probably the only thing now that isn't, isn't public now in Formula One. If you think about the amount we see, the amount we get access to. Um, and I think there's an element of that, isn't there? That F1 and the teams have probably realized, you know, if you think about Saudi last year is probably a great example where they were having those meetings. Imagine if, if we'd seen what had been said in those, you know, how, how much kind of damage control F1 would have had to do. But yeah, I love those as well. I can't believe I can't forward. believe you guys forgot the most important invention in F1. And that's uh, for the Skyglass customers. It's the red button. Come on. Oh, yeah. The greatest <laughs> yeah. invention so far in Formula One. Yeah. That's true. Well, the sky glass I thought was just such an obvious one. We didn't want to say it. Um, yeah, I've never I've never used sky glass, so I don't know if it's if it's as good as the adverts make out. But what's next? What do you think will be the next technological advancement or addition to broadcast? What do you want to see? One they're already experimenting with, although I've yet to be convinced by, but I think has huge potential is drones. So, mm-hmm. of course, most the aerial footage of races is from a helicopter Mm -hmm. and actually when you're at the track watching the helicopter in itself is sometimes more entertaining than watching the race because it's banking low it's coming up over trees um and uh tracing cars around the track um so that's great but the potential for drones is 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 very high but at the moment they've only really had them running uh on kind of bits of the infield for obvious reasons because if they fall out of the sky and onto the track you've got you've got an issue um yeah. so they've never quite been able to get over the cars or as close to the cars as you would hope and as you often see in promotional videos and uh kind of go for his own professional videos but the teams have done it occasionally um so they have what they call filming days which is when they get all their filming to share with their sponsors and all of that kind of stuff and all the photographs they need for the year and they get a couple of those a year and a few a few of those they've taken drones out and flown them over cars as they go around uh parts of the circuit and it looks incredible. So if you can find, and this may never be possible, but if you can find a drone that's reliable enough to kind of fly just two or three meters above the cars as they go into the first corner, that would be sensational. But I don't know if we'll ever get that. I don't really know what the limitations are in, on drones. I'm sure, some listeners will know much better than I do and why that's impossible. But um, <laughs> I think that would be fantastic to see. You know, they say air traffic controllers have the most stressful like jobs of of anybody. And I don't know, do you call them drone flyers or do you call them drone drivers? Whatever the terminology is like, I couldn't imagine the stress because some of these people, I mean, you see these promotions, these commercials that are all done by drone footage. They're incredible, like the nooks and crannies that they're flying. Like you've seen like the stadiums that they showcase, like new openings of let's take you through this new stadium or new arena the way that they can fly these things is unbelievable, but I couldn't imagine the stress if you were taxed with, Hey, we're going to have you be our drone flyer driver for an F1 Grand Prix. That would be, I couldn't can you imagine. That. Can you imagine one falls on the track and they're like, we have no. to red flag the race. No. And it's a, on you. you. Know, can, you, can you imagine that, that? And yeah. And you're the guy like there's, there's no coming oh, back you. from that. So one thing they do seem to have gone away from a bit more. They used to be really hot on these. I used to love them was the little cameras that would sit in, in inside the corners 
So you'd have cars going over them. You still see them occasionally, but there was an era when I think that Formula One was just obsessed with them. And like every race you'd have, every lap, it'd be like, no, 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 no. And they'd all be coming through the corners and it would just be great because you'd see how fast they were going. And they don't seem to do that so much now. I'm not sure if if if, if there's a reason behind that. Um, but I used to love those. So I don't know whether, maybe they're maybe they're just considered a bit too old school now. There's so many, so many new innovations you can have. But I used to love those. Those those used to look fantastic. They, they do still have them. Um, they do. They, they yeah, maybe they maybe they're maybe they're less spectacular now. That might be the other the other thing. Maybe uh, I, I yeah, noticed them I, less. I think there's like a slight reluctance because you have no idea what's going on. So somebody <laughs> could be over to you just see like yeah, that's two, true. Like, one red flash at a Ferrari and one silver flash at a Mercedes, and that's your lot. But um, yeah, I think they occasionally use them. But I, I know they definitely still exist because um, on one of the I think it was a Thursday. Um, so a media day for us at the French Grand Prix. And I was sat in the press room and th- we have all the TVs up there which show us the race, obviously, when the race is on. But at those times of the weekend, they're just showing stock camera footage. So sometimes you get a few down the pit straight or whatever. Anyway, and, but one got stuck on one of these curve cams. And you can see all these people doing what we call like a track run, which is when you try and stay fit at a Formula One race and you run yeah. around the track a couple of times. And you see all these people like panting in like 30 degree heat in, <laughs> uh, in France trying to do it. So they definitely still exist because I remember... Um, sending a picture of one to somebody who was doing a track run. Um, and I saw them on it. But yeah, the, but not often, you so often. You're right. And I think there is, they. this stuff really goes through trends, doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. real trends of thing, one thing or another. And one <clears> thing <throat> which I really didn't like was when F1 was superimposing uh, either messages or on one occasion we had the superimposed uh, shadow of an eagle flying over turn one at Cota <laughs> just midway through the race. And I think it was it was kind of end of the Bernie era. And like, um, yeah, I think they were like, right, what can we do? We must do something new and innovative in TV. How can we do it? And um, to try and detract from the fact that some of the racing got really quite dull. And, uh, and so they started flying imaginary eagles over turn one, which I don't really want to have returns for more. Speaking of Cota, there was one... It wasn't really an F1 innovation at Cota, but it was one that definitely should be brought in for just for just the humor. I don't know if you if you watch this race cage or if you can remember it, but there was I think it was 17 or 18. It was one of the first ones they did at Cota as a journalist. And you could hear somebody on the mic going, no, 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 like that. And he'd found a mic somewhere and he was doing the car sounds. And to his credit, David Croft, when he's doing the um the world feed says, Oh, there's somebody, somebody, you know, has found him. Yeah, he's kind of laughing it off a little bit, but it was fantastic. And then he'd taken a self he filmed himself doing it as well. And I always thought that was great because you know Who was it? Just so much... a random I think worker? it was a random I think maybe he was working at the circuit or something. But um it you know, it I, I don't think the race was the most exciting one either. Or maybe it was a you know at a lull in the race or something like that. But that one always sticks out. Maybe you couldn't do that every week. Before, you know, get annoying very quickly. But for maybe a dull race, you maybe you maybe you put someone next to a microphone and say, "Do your best, do your best car impression." From when he started the sounds to when he was found, how long transpired? Oh, a few days, a few oh, days. Because yeah, it, so it was shown on the broadcast, and then it was kind of laughed at. And I think there was a few more where you could hear it, and then the video emerged of him doing it a day or two later. And um, he's doing it with this big grin on his face. He's kind of laughing as he does it. Um, so, yeah, I can't remember the guy's name. I don't know actually what happened to that guy. So, you know, on the off chance he's listening to this pod, please do get in touch. Um, but, yeah, I, I loved it. Well, but yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he can, he can do <laughs> some sounds for us and we can you know use them for transitions and stuff like that. Um, That's incredible. Oh, there are worse names to have, by the way. Yeah, definitely. I'll take you should take that. 
Um, couple updates real quick. We've been telling you about car reveals and the certain dates of those launches. Alfa Romeo has announced that February 7th is their date for their car launch. The last remaining team that we are awaiting is Haas. What do we know? What are we expecting just from what they've done in the past, Nate? Yeah, so Haas, they, they tend to they tend to follow a blueprint. You know, they they're not so they don't go all out really with the car launch. You know, often we get a kind of an email, you know, a press release with you know a car image in it. Um, you know, with the livery, and we don't actually usually see the real thing until the morning of testing, which is, you know, it, it just, I think that they like to just, you know, go for the kind of the, the no frills approach. But what's interesting is the one year they went all out with it was um, 2018 or 19. I forget the year they had Rich Energy. It was 2019. And um, that's obviously the year that the title sponsorship completely fell apart by mid year. And they had this really nice event at the Royal Automobile Club in London. We all got dressed up. We, you know, they had the new livery. It looked like the old Lotus car. And um, so I think that that experience, if Haas were ever going to lean back towards going towards doing launches, I think the memory of that event has kind of maybe you know made them think twice about it. Because obviously this year they've got a new title sponsor to replace your Carly from a few years ago mm-hmm. um, in MoneyGram. So we haven't heard of an official launch. They may well do something, but it's very out of character for them to do that. But I kind of like that. They're, they're kind of the guys that just... They'll throw in a press release and say, here's the car. And I think they were the first team to show us a 22 car, if I remember rightly. They just kind of dropped an email and said, here's what it looks like. And I think you get, for a team like us, it's quite good. You get a bit of a buzz. You can generate your own kind of hype around that. You know, maybe you own a day or you own two days of the of the kind of the craziness and silly season. But that's what, that's what we're expecting. And I think things might look a little different on that car next year in terms mm. of color, livery, just with the new guys coming in. Good tease. Maybe we'll have more information next week. Um, As always, I appreciate you both. Thank you so much for your analysis. That's it for us on Unlapped. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like our video, leave us a comment, and subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Nate Lawrence, thanks so much. Cheers.